0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to
1: Unemployed unemployed Workers workers Fight Back. back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show
0: between 5.30 and 6.30pm.
1: Here on 3CR Community Community Radio. Radio.
0: This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions
1: for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone everyone in in our our community community has value.
0: Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, and on this Friday, the 23rd of April. How are you?
1: Hello, Kevin. How are you?
0: Not too bad. Hey, now, um, the last show we did, we were talking about uh, women and the economy, and that was like a a little intro. Mm. What do you call it? A preamble.
2: We know from all the research over years, I've done some of it, that 70% of mothers without a pandemic feel rushed and pressed for time. They're stressed.
1: Professor Barbara Pocock, who is a professor of economics, talking at the Sustainable Prosperity Action Group
2: in Adelaide. If we measured unpaid work, it actually doubles GDP in almost every country.
0: We've got more to talk about this week, yeah?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's so much to say about women and the economy and how women fare in our economy. But today I wanted to talk specifically about the relationship between paid work and motherhood. And this came up because I was speaking with our next guest about the pressures that women face juggling these roles as mothers and as workers. And I have to admit, I am not a mother myself, but some of that resonates with me. For example, I know a lot of unemployed workers do a lot of work that is unrecognized and unpaid. And then there's also that issue with long-term unemployed workers getting back into the workforce. So the longer you're out of the workforce, the harder it can be to get back in. And of course, there'll be an overlap there with women and unemployed workers. And you know what? I hadn't realized this, but when we do these kind of topics, we're actually looking at microeconomics, not macroeconomics. So... The economists that specialise in this, they consider themselves to be micro economists. So it's a little bit of a difference for us on this show.
0: If you look at what happens in the micro economy, that will affect the macro economy. So it's all connected. Mm-hmm. And we and we did touch on the role of mothers in the economy in the last show. The point being that you and I don't understand why the role of mothering is so devalued in our economy, why it's why it's so taken for granted.
1: And so one of the issues that's coming up very strongly at the moment is the issue around universal childcare and what that could do for mothers and fathers and families who are making decisions. So it's like... Why aren't we giving our parents all the options that they could have, especially women? Why aren't we giving them all the options they could have instead of saying, actually, no, you just have to be really stressed and try and juggle being a mother and being a worker at the same time? Yeah. So to that end, I had a really nice conversation with an acquaintance of mine, Melinda. Uh, So let's just jump right into that.
3: You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au
1: So, welcome to the show, Melinda, and thanks for being willing to come on and talk about this.
2: Oh, thank you, Anne. i um, really pleased to be here today. It's really been an interest of mine, and and of course I have lived experience as well.
1: And that was why I really wanted to speak with you, because I have a feeling you've got quite a unique position there, both privately and professionally, to hear a lot of stories that women are telling. <laughs>
2: Professionally, uh, I'm a careers coach and personally, uh, I'm a mother, I'm a mum of uh, an eight and a ten-year-old, so I'm constantly surrounded by mums at school functions, pickups, dads as well, of course, and having these conversations out and about on a almost daily basis mm. whilst conducting my own career or shaping it to fit um, with where my children are at, where my family's at, also,
1: I can be a fly on the wall now,
2: <laughs> all these
1: conversations that mothers might be having as they're gathering to pick the kids up after
2: school. the school gate
1: It's the school gate conversation
2: <laughs> yes, yeah.
1: so just generally, what are you hearing from women in particular about their
2: role as mothers? um look, I have noticed there's certainly a couple of groups. There's probably a smaller percentage of the group who have continued a full-time career and they have relied on family assistance, perhaps nanny assistance and outside holiday programs and childcare to assist them um, with those extra hours, particularly you know from kinder all the way through to after school. And then I have noticed um, a large proportion who have adjusted their careers or perhaps even put the workplace on hold for this earlier junior years.
4: Mm.
2: So the majority of mothers I've come across have certainly made a huge adjustment to their careers to raise their children in the early years and may or may not intend to go back. Some have retrained, but the bulk that I see had to really put their time to their family and their children because of the amount of school pickups, drop-offs, also the 13-plus weeks of um, holidays across the calendar year with school holidays. So that becomes quite a dilemma as to what to do. Mm -hmm. There are holiday programs and such, but I notice a number of them just want to spend quality time with their children during that time.
1: Just to clarify too, in your professional life, I think you've had a bit of a window on these discussions.
2: Absolutely. And quite early in in my career um, as a career advisor, I was actually working for a number of years helping mums looking to go back into the workplace. Mm -hmm. And what I found was the majority of them were were angling to go back into a part-time position after that, probably an average of seven to eight years out of the workplace, so I did deal with quite a number of them who were had felt that it was time for them to go back. And we looked at their skills, did some assessments, looked at the market. And one standout factor, unfortunately, I, I often saw was that many of them felt they would only qualify for the lowest level position, regardless of what they'd done previously. And I I do feel that that was a common theme throughout my time working with return to work months and not all of them, but confidence levels certainly had dropped um, from being out of the workplace, which is really unfortunate because they're of course capable of so much more, Mm -hmm. but that was the perception that they would need to start from the bottom and work their way back up again. And you didn't see
1: that as necessarily the case?
2: No, well, certainly a lot of them have had absolutely fantastic roles before they had their children. So these days there are a number of very, very short courses, micro courses that might be a benefit to you know boost someone's self-esteem going back into the workplace.
1: Going back to that issue of when women are making the decision about when and whether to go back into the workforce... I was just wondering about some of the pressures that they might be experiencing, either that they're placing on themselves in terms of what they think a good mother should do, or the kind of pressures they might be experiencing through friends or family, or even through the schools. Just what that experience is like.
2: Um, Certainly upon the birth of my first child, I was quite surprised by the amount of well-meaning, friends and family, that would come up to me and say, what else are you doing when will you be going back to work? And I feel being part of this sort of generation, we were told that we could have it all. I certainly had that perception before I I had children. Mm -hmm. I would have children. They would go to daycare. I would return to work in a similar capacity as I had done previously. Mm. What came into play for me was the emotional bond and emotional attachment of such a young child and, of course, some of that mother guilt about, gee, what can I do that makes the child happy while I find something that's also stimulating and I can contribute within the family. Mm. Um, What came up for me was actually the cost of childcare. If I was to go back into a even a part-time role, the equation was that I would be paying almost the equivalent to what I would be earning to the childcare um, centre. Mm. So questions came up for me as to the child's happiness, emotional well-being, the very strong bond and attachment they have when they're from one and under, um, and their ability to realise that you will return for them um, <laughs> in a couple of hours or, or so. So I, I found that. Very, very stressful. Mm. So I really had to spend that year rethinking how will this play out for me? How will I find that satisfaction that work gave me? Which I did, but it did take longer than I expected. And I I found it within um, undertaking some study and then beginning my career once my children were at kinder age. Yeah. You
1: know, I've come across a bunch of scholars that call themselves motherhood scholars. So they're feminist scholars, but they are describing what women experience specifically as mothers. Mm. And one person I came across was Petra Buskins. And I thought she made a really nice summary of this contradiction that women are facing where you mentioned we've been told we can have it all. Mm. Okay. And she was saying, well, women are now seen as free to choose. They're seen as having this freedom as individuals. But on the other hand, women as mothers face lots of constraints. And so I was thinking, you know, that's a really nice articulation of what you're describing there, that stressful moment of
2: the contradiction. It is. And perhaps we can have it all, I think, as many uh, amazing women have said, but perhaps not all at the same time. And I do realise it's possible to have it all over a lifetime. Um but perhaps not in those extremely early years. Mm. Whereas my presumptions had been that that would be the case, I will go back to almost full-time work and life will resume as previously. That was quite a hurdle and I know that is quite a hurdle for many women who then need to make that adjustment.
1: Yeah, so the having it all can get interpreted as life will just go on (laughs) as it always has. (laughs) Yes. Just as a side note on that. Do you do you get a sense these days that mothers feel more guilty about going back to work or more guilty about not working? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Probably more guilty about going back to work. I, I don't meet a lot of mothers who feel guilty for not working that I'm aware of anyway.
1: Oh, how interesting! So that's where the the internal pressure is coming from, going back to work. Mm. But then, what what's the guilt there then?
2: Um, being across everything I suppose the time constraints I think are are, are a big one and having things right at home meals prepared and um, flying out the door for that 3 p.m pickup has been frowned upon um, and I think that's for for mums and dads Mm. that is a real sticking point I know there's been so many stories of mums who say oh they hung a jacket over the back of the seat in the office to make it look like they were still there and just dashed off and came back and oh my gosh the subterfuge uh, (laughs) you the whole sneaking out or i've got a meeting i really hope that that's changing out there for people and there's some flexibility because we we can work on our phones we can work on our ipads um, many, many mums and dads work late into the evening to, to compensate for those hours lost. Mm. And in regards to schools, I do notice that that's something that's going to be factored into parents' time as well.
1: Oh, let's talk a bit about that, about the, uh, the expectations that schools have these days of mothers or parents. Can you describe what some of that looks like?
2: Um, besides our, teaching uh, at home last year i do feel that there is quite a significant amount to keep on top of on a weekly basis reading every single night and making comments on that ticking off homework which is usually in the junior years needs to be guided or overseen by parents and you know a proportion of the weekend is certainly my household spent on those homework tasks and mum will usually get the email from the school, you know, requesting a cake to be brought in or requesting a parent-teacher meeting. And I find that really quite interesting that it's mum who will be asked for. Mm. So if if a parent was working full time, I feel it, it would be quite a stretch in terms of time pressure.
1: There's another motherhood scholar I came across, Andrea O'Reilly, who's in Canada and she's been a pioneer in motherhood studies. And she's been describing this phenomenon she calls intensive mothering.
2: (laughs) I did watch
5: that clip, Anne.
1: Yeah. Maybe it gets even worse over in the American context where mothers not only supervising homework, but sometimes doing the homework on behalf of the child. I
5: did hear that.
1: And, you know, they're they're meant to be like the mentor of the child and the companion of the child and the confidant of the child and sometimes the playmate of the child. And so it does get very intensive. I just liked Andrea's concluding joke where she said, well, how are mothers supposed to deal with doing this intensive parenting? And so Andrea's idea was, To enable women to be able to do this, all they need to do is marry a rich guy. That's what you need to do. (laughs) And I thought about that and I was (laughs) thinking, okay, so if we've set up these expectations as a society, what's the solutions? You've already mentioned this need for childcare where you saw that there's this financial trap women are in in terms of the costs of childcare. There is a lot of talk at the moment about the government providing Uh, universal childcare, as well as universal early learning. And of course, on this show, we are a show about economics and we follow this line of economics thought that the Australian government issues Australian dollars. It can therefore never run out of Australian dollars. So the Australian government can never go insolvent. It can always pay any debt that's denominated in Australian dollars and it also can buy whatever is for sale in Australian dollars. And so the only limit that is on government spending, it's not a financial limit, it's not where do you get the dollars, it's where are the resources. So if we're talking about free childcare, for example, they only have to worry about do we have enough childcare workers and so on. So I was wondering if you were to imagine the ideal world of universal free childcare, do you think that would go any way to supporting both the aspirations and the needs of women and children?
2: I really do. I think that although many mothers may not want to go back in those first couple of years, it would certainly give everybody a complete choice whether they go back two days or three days or they retrain. It would make a huge difference to women's participation in the workforce. So certainly that loss of confidence wouldn't be there like the uh, the mums I had dealt with. It really would give that continuity of career um, without that concern of how much that childcare bill will be. Mm. Just to provide a little freedom. We know that families are not the village. Perhaps they were many, many years back where, you know, aunt or grandma lives around the corner We're all very international and very interstate.
1: I'm even imagining that women could avail themselves of the childcare even for non-work things that they might want to do, (laughs) just to to take the break.
2: Yes, (laughs) just to um, have a breather and gather your thoughts.
1: Uh, The other thing that comes up with this economic school of thought, the modern monetary theory, as well as the government with its unlimited supply of dollars... (laughs) supplying universal childcare could also potentially pay women simply for their roles as mothers. And there's a bit of discussion around whether child rearing would be included as a form of work within the job guarantee. So the job guarantee is a universal offer of work to anyone who wants to work and it would be paid at an inclusive minimum wage. So you're probably looking at 40000 plus a year, plus sickness benefits and so on.
2: The first thing I'd probably think around that would be women's superannuation, the lack of from not being in the workplace. And secondly, just um, giving them independence and and their own funds. Um, But long term, what happens if they do stay home for 18 years or... 10 years. We know that women are living longer and they have very little on average in super funds to support them into later life. So I think that that would be a key motivator for a lot of women to, to take that opportunity on if it arose. And I know that's been key to a number of women I've spoken to in regards to returning to work quite soon after the birth of their children in that long term view. Continuity of career and then, of course, um, super contributions.
0: You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back here on 3CR Community Radio.
1: Another thing I was thinking about was um, how it's considered an achievement the eight hour workday. So the idea there was that you would do eight hours work, eight hours play, and eight hours rest. Then there's this assumption that comes with that that people will do their sleeping for an eight-hour block every night and i was thinking about my own sleep patterns and i was really really interested to discover that in victorian literature there's this phenomenon of what they call the second sleep Ooh. so people would go to sleep at sundown you know it would get dark you go to sleep you'd have your four hours sleep then you'd wake up again and you'd be wide awake and so you'd get up and you would light a candle and you might go to your writing desk and do some correspondence or you might even go and visit a neighbour. And then you get sleepy again and you go back to bed and you have your second four hours and then you're up at daybreak. <laughs> oh. oh my goodness. And I thought uh, how the requirements of capital for labour can impact on all of these really basic, very intimate physiological processes. And it includes uh, three meals a day, so the work breaks that have been um, incorporated into uh, workplace conditions, they regulate how we have our food as well. Ooh. I wonder what sort of things would impinge upon how mothers and children interact.
2: Certainly young children and sleep can be an issue for clear mindedness most days. That was another factor of course about going back into work. How could I deliver? Best quality work under these conditions.
1: <laughs> it's like that eight-hour day is being applied to infants, you know, <laughs> through the mother.
2: Yes, and it is that presumption that um, you'll have your night's sleep, then you'll be fresh and ready to go to work the next day. Let's hope that since we experienced COVID and there has been some flexibility and working from home, that will assist parents in juggling what they can when they can and. Um, perception would change from employers.
1: Yeah, and I was thinking even about workplace craties as a support that could be fully
2: funded by our government if they so chose. Mm. And, you know, well-paid workers as well in that space. mm I remember speaking to somebody at a university whose children were at the um, the university child crèche and it worked extremely well for her. Mm. I was very surprised when she said how old her children were and she was holding down a full-time position. That proximity, I think, when they're very young is, is a very nice thing to have. She could see them at lunchtime and that seemed like an all-inclusive solution, I guess. Mm. It's just the acknowledgement, I think, that, you know, children are young, they need to be cared for, they want to see their parents. It's just a healthy arrangement.
1: We do still tend to talk about career women, but I don't hear us talking about career men very much. Oh, he's a career man. (laughs) Yes. And just for the fact that there's that difference in language, I was wondering how you react to that term, career
2: woman. We're We're in... Twenty Twenty One. It's just, um, it's really nice to be known um, for other things that you do and contribute towards as well. And it is possible to do a little little bit of both across certain parts of the day and the week. Um, just for that sense of identity and confidence for women, it's a huge issue out there. I, I hear it a lot through my clients. Um, a sense of identity outside their role as a mother and away from the house and it's hard to believe we're still talking about that but it is a huge thing
1: yeah it is hard to believe isn't it in 2021
2: um my personal view is that if women don't make an opportunity for themselves in 18 years time where will they be for themselves in in every way personally and professionally Mm. i think what's not so spoken about what about the fulfilment of the mother to then be able to apply herself to all of the uh, the child-raising duties?
1: There's a lot of talk in workplaces about taking care of your workers to the point of like the Google phenomenon of giving people table tennis <laughs> in the middle of the, the office. <laughs> but we don't think about how do we maintain our mothers in, in good health and happiness.
2: Absolutely. Fulfillment, perhaps. Stimulation, confidence for women, where does that come into it? Why why do we see that as a, a negative or a guilty thing?
1: Mm. i did spring on you, the idea of modern monetary theory, this idea that the government faces no financial constraints, only resource constraints. And, you know, the opposite of how we see the economy operating is what we call neoliberalism. And there's a narrative that comes out of that about the government having to scrimp and save and, you know, we even saw it recently in Australia where Morrison government was suddenly able to fund all this childcare as needed but then they had to take it away again because the country can't afford it. (laughs) We know the country can afford it as far as the dollars go. Yeah, And I came across this really interesting idea where somebody was saying, well, mothers who have been in this situation where often they need to scrimp and save to keep their kids fed and clothed and housed and and schooled and, you know, the fear of debt really does hang over you. Mm. For people who know the financial impact of raising a family, that austerity line, we call it the austerity line that comes out of both sides of government, comes out of the Liberal and the Labor parties, that can be more easily swallowed just because your experience is that you've got to worry about. Your um household budget all the time, so the government could, in fact, supply the money for these kinds of supports: the early childhood learning, the universal childcare, crèches in workplaces. All of those are are financially possible, and I just wonder how you react to hearing that.
2: <laughs> Almost astounded, really. Sounds like many of us could, as the government wants, get back into workplace or some sort of role that contributes to society a lot earlier we just need a place that will care for our children in those early years that won't equate to every cent that we're earning out there so yeah that would be very helpful for Australian mums.
1: well thanks for giving me your perspective and for coming on the show Melinda thank you Anne it was a pleasure
2: thank you so much
0: you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience
1: of unemployment and underemployment, here on
0: 3CR Community Radio.
1: Women are still juggling and still torn between their roles as a mother and their roles in the workforce. What's going on with our economy and our policymakers? that women are still stressed for time when it comes to being a mother and a worker. Melinda had so many interesting things to say there, and I wanted to delve into what an economist might have to say around some of those experiences that Melinda was describing. Professor Guillaume Kalb was very gracious to spend some time with me to discuss this issue. Professor Kalb is a director of the Labour Economics and Social Policy Program at the University of Melbourne. Guillaume, welcome to the show. Thank you, Anne. It's great to uh,
5: be part of this interesting uh, topic.
1: Well, that's what you said to me when I first contacted you about women's participation in the workforce. You did say that this is an area that really interests you. Yeah. Why is that such an area of interest for you?
5: Partly because I'm I'm quite puzzled by the fact that it's very uh, slow in getting policies developed to accommodate family and work. So I personally don't think of it as a female issue alone. It's really as much an issue for men who are fathers as well.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: I kind of feel that policymakers are a little bit behind on the game in trying to develop policies that will really help families and basically give women an opportunity to both be a mother and continue participating in the labor force.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, the reason why I'm puzzled is that it makes economic sense uh, as well. Um, women who withdraw from the labor market may have difficulties re-entering at a later point in time. and That can have long-term impacts on their capability of earning an income And that may lead to higher probability of income support dependence when they get older. It may lead to poverty and financial vulnerability, which I think are really <laughs> important issues to try and avoid. seems
1: like there's a problem for women as individuals and the society as a whole. Mm. Just Why are we so slow in putting in place policy that supports women when it would appear that it would support the economy as well?
5: I think it's partly because of short-term thinking. To put these policies in place, you have to take a long-term perspective, Uh, not just look at what will it cost me now and what will it return right now, but what will be the longer-term returns. If you don't take this long-term perspective, you will not invest because you think, oh, it's so expensive to do things. Mm. Obviously, universal childcare is, is quite expensive. But I think when you take into account sort of this longer term view, it may well be financially viable. Right. So investing now in women in the labor force who have children may avoid longer term income support dependence and making sure that family and work can be combined well also helps children to grow up into productive adults and for women themselves. Women are particularly vulnerable uh, when they step out of the labor market to look after children. The force rates are quite high, and that means that their specialization in home production, caring for children, can come at a financial loss to them down the track. Whereas men who remain in the labor market, they keep their earning power and don't have those same consequences of divorce. I
1: am hearing a lot of calls for the government to subsidise universal childcare as well as to fund early childhood education. Are they the main solutions that you're looking at?
5: I think they they are very helpful. I think that in some instances, when a family is uh, on an income that's not very generous, it may be hardly financial worthwhile to go back to the labour force when you have children and have to pay for Mm childcare. Uh, And childcare and early learning are not the same thing, but early learning to some extent can be used as Mm childcare. Yeah, they, they are sort of two policies that are potentially feasible, but I think there's other policies that are important as well. So I think employers have a role to play in making sure that employment where possible is flexible when both fathers and mothers can shift their start and end time. They can actually work together to make sure that they can drop off their children at childcare uh, and maybe limit the total amount of childcare that they may need to take, for example, by working four days a week each. Four days that are different from each other, you would just need three days of childcare. So there's many different ways that you can try to make balancing family and work easier. So I think It's not just one thing that you have to change. You have to think about it as a whole uh, system. Mm -hmm. And if I may give an example, a couple of years ago, the paid parental leave was introduced, which I think was a really good policy to try and encourage women to remain attached to the labor force. And and it did work. Mm -hmm. But one of the issues was at the end of the paid parental leave, if you want to return to work, you need childcare. And so that was not in place for all women and especially for women of young children. So when you have a child under age of one, it's more difficult to find childcare. And so that's an example of where you really need to make sure that the policies connect to each other so that when you provide paid parental leave, that's then followed by the availability of childcare when the parent wants to return to work. Similarly, if the employers are not willing to be flexible, then you can provide all the perfect childcare, all the great policies. But if you insist on people working particular hours that don't align with those needs for childcare, then Mm -hmm. you're not going to achieve much. So it really needs to be a collaboration, I feel, of all the different groups in society to help make balancing family and work more
3: more feasible. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au
1: You know, I have to admit, on this show we focus on a macroeconomic theory known as modern monetary theory. And I'm just wondering if you've come across that at all. No, <laughs> I haven't. Oh, good. I get to to tell you all about it. Yes. <laughs> it's basically this theory that says that a government that produces its own currency, so that a government that is a currency issuer like the Australian government, can never run out of the currency. So on any kind of program, there's no financial limit. They can produce the dollars to buy whatever is for sale and the limit then becomes what is for sale. So if we were looking at something like childcare and we we did see last year, you know, we saw a little blip with Comrade Morrison coming out of the closet and funding universal childcare and then it went away again. Yeah. So the only limits would be, well, do you have enough childcare workers? Do you have enough locations to run childcare centres and that sort of thing? So I might be hitting you with a, a, a novel idea here, but essentially the way we look at it is that... The government has no financial constraints; it only has resource constraints. And I was just wondering if we did hit this ideal world where the government was willing to fund universal childcare. What do you see Australia's capability for that?
5: I, I think at the moment we don't have enough childcare workers. I would imagine because a lot of children don't use childcare, so I mentioned that you would have to increase the number of places uh, considerably to be making that possible. Um, I think one of one of the issues with childcare work is that it's not very highly paid. So I think that attracting new workers to that uh, workforce may be challenging. So I think a lot of the childcare workers that are there at the moment, they're not doing it for the money. I think they do it because they really like the work and they like working with children.
4: Mm.
5: When you compare the education uh, that is actually required for them to be a childcare worker. And then the payment that they get, that's not really aligned. So I think a lot of other occupations where you need similar level of uh, education, you would get paid much more. And so to me, it's a really interesting phenomenon that um, people you trust with your children are being paid relatively little. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking to really increase the childcare workforce, and you want to provide childcare that's of good quality then I think you probably will have to actually pay more to childcare workers than you do right now.
1: So there's scope for increasing payment to staff as well as increasing the numbers of staff. And it seems to me that a policy of free universal childcare would encourage probably women but also both parents into the workforce, whereas a policy of a parenting payment might encourage women to be full time mothers. How would you do the policy mix that offers women the range of choices and the range of options?
5: So, you have uh, at the moment you have family payments that are paid to families as a support in the cost of bringing up children. And so, developing childcare policies alongside those family payments requires some fine balancing. I think that at the moment, it's perhaps a little bit too much angled towards encouraging women to stay at home. It's become better than it used to be. But there is still a payment that you can only get if the secondary earner earns less than a certain amount, which means that a family who has two earners and has an income that is less than a one earner family would not get a particular type of family payment, whereas the higher earner, one earner family, would get the family payment. And so I think that's one thing I would uh, propose you would need to really uh, get rid of. Mm -hmm. It creates these inequalities between families where there's one earner and two earners. Whereas a two earner family, because they need to spend time outside of the home, actually do need more income because they have less time. Mm. And I think those are some of the things that I would like to see go because I think, especially for women, just on the margin might really push them to stay at home because if they would start earning, they would lose this payment. And so in a way, they're paying a higher level of tax than average person that starts entering the labour market.
1: What does the financial structure for families and women look like for paying for childcare? So... One of the things I heard is like if a woman works five days a week, the first three days she's earning money and then the last two days she's not.
5: (laughs) Yeah, that's because the subsidies that are paid are up to a certain amount and so that means that you would get the subsidy for the first three days that you're working but then the last two days that you're working you pay the full childcare fee. I mean for some women that may not be such an issue. So if you're on a really high wage then – you can probably afford uh, paying for the child care you would still have enough to make it financially worthwhile going into the labor force and if you're on a low income that may not be enough to offset your 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 additional income that could be a disincentive to work more hours
4: mm.
5: i think that it is important to make sure that all women have the opportunity to work the hours that they would like to work especially given the fact that it can have such long-term impacts. Mm. And so I think we should perhaps make the uh, subsidies more generous and have them taken away at a later point.
1: Well, I highly recommend you look into MMT, because there we would find out that you could make the subsidy as generous as you want. <laughs>
5: <laughs> well, <laughs> I must say, um, it sounds a little bit suspicious to me. but
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know people do react against it, and it's, it's not a main, it's a heterodox economics. But anyway, we're promoting it ourselves. <laughs> There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new T-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on
2: 855 AM. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au
1: When we um, talk about these solutions around funding childcare and funding early childhood education, I don't know if you ever hear this as a critique, but... um, how how would you respond to this critique that this is just the commodification of parenthood?
5: <laughs> yeah, no, I do get the comment often that, yeah, motherhood is, is an important task. And I totally agree with that. Um, but fatherhood is too. And I think it's not that I say that parents shouldn't care for their own children. I just think it should be shared more equally between parents. It shouldn't be always the mothers that do all the caring and the fathers that do all the working in the labor market. I think if you can find a balance where both take some part of the caring tasks and some parts of the working outside of the home task, I think everyone will actually be better off. It's not just good for women. I think men will actually also uh, have a better life. They'll be more involved with their children. It's very fulfilling. you build a relationship with your children. You know what they're up to. You can sort of teach them things mm. and have better relationships within the family. Which I think is worth something as well. It's not all about money. I mean, as an economist, I do think about costs and benefits a lot, but I also see sort of the the other uh, benefits that come from working in the labor market and caring for your children. And so I think both work and family should have an important role in both mothers and fathers uh, lives.
1: Yeah, I like that vision. And so far, we haven't actually mentioned the interests of the child
5: yeah. <laughs> in all of this. <laughs> also important. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I think what it is extremely important that the childcare that's provided is of excellent quality. Parents feel very confident and comfortable leaving their children there. But I also think that mothers and fathers who are in the labour force provide an example for their children uh, and can be better parents as a result of being participants in the broader society. So I think that you can do it all, but maybe you should do less of some things. So I think that maybe at the moment men are working too much and maybe women are caring too much. So maybe we need to mix mm-hmm. it up a little bit more. So I think children will also fare really well when when their fathers are more involved in their lives. So I think that you want, if possible, perhaps one day a week, caring by the father, one day a week caring by the mother. You have the weekends, of course, that the parents are there, and then maybe two or three days in childcare. Because childcare is a very different environment to the parental home and can really enrich the child's life as well. So the social connections that they are making and learning to share with other children, I think is a really important part of development.
1: I'm trying to think what sort of policy mix might help with that rebalancing of men out of work? Because that's sort of the flip side of it all.
5: One thing that I think is really important is employers. It's more difficult for men to make use of some of the family-friendly policies that are provided, that it might hurt their career, for example, that men who are taking up these responsibilities are seen as not taking their career as seriously. Mm. I don't have uh, solutions for it, but I think it's an area that's really important to make sure Men who do make use of family-friendly policies are not uh, penalized for doing so. So the norms that people have. Mm -hmm. And I think that policies can help change norms. So sometimes policies need to lead the way because otherwise change will not happen, but you cannot expect policies to change culture straight away. So I think you in some ways have to be patient sometimes Mm. and say, okay, let's introduce this policy, even though maybe not that many men fathers are going to use it right now, but we need to put it in place so that we show that we as a government, as a society, think it's okay for men to look after children, take some time out of work, and basically, provide the opportunity to do that mm-hmm. i think uh, we can take an example of the northern european countries where they have put aside some paid parental leave that's specifically for fathers and if you don't use it then you will lose it so that has sort of slowly increased the amount of paper parental leave that fathers are taking it does sort of uh, initiate change and when more men are using it other men will see this as an example and it will become easier. So I think the first man will sort of be the, uh, uh, the pioneers, <laughs> yeah, uh, paved the way for others. <laughs> Some men have been doing this for, for decades already and they are the true pioneers. I think before all the policies were put in place to actually make it easier for them. It, it is uh, a process where policy and norms can reinforce each other. I think things are changing but perhaps not as quickly as we would like to see.
1: I'm James Juniper. I'm
0: an economist at the University of Newcastle, and you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Radio 3CR.
1: So obviously over the past year we had this pandemic-induced lockdown And uh, one of the interesting phenomenon was that it actually decreased women's paid work and increased their unpaid work because families were forced into the home and there was more homeschooling going on. Uh, One of the stats I discovered was that between February and June in 2020, employment fell by 5.8% for women compared with 4.5% for men. So women took a bigger hit in the pandemic. At the same time, we had a federal budget come out in October 2020 in which for every dollar that women got, men got $2.28. So men were getting more than double the help that women were. Mm. And it seemed like part of that was because the budget was investing in what they call these capital-intensive industries like construction and not in these labour-intensive industries like education and healthcare. So I just wondered how you see it sort of continuing to play out, and what would you like to see the government do about it?
5: Yeah, I did do a little bit of research on female employment over COVID, and women were hit harder than men, and I think this was across the world. Mm-hmm. And perhaps not surprisingly, because women tend to work more often in surface provision, so... I guess that was the area that was most hit by um, the social distancing rules and so the impact on them and their jobs was more. And on top of that, higher unemployment, the women also took more care of the children during the homeschooling, which meant that they spent much more time with the children at home than they already do in normal non-COVID circumstances. Mm -hmm. But there is a little silver lining, um, because men were more at home as well. And apparently in Australia, uh, men actually were taking more part in the caring tasks with children, uh, and in the homeschooling. And so potentially working from home could have informed, I guess, around sort of the amount of work that's involved in caring. But yeah, there's been some data collected for australia and for the us which showed that uh, in australia this was obvious from the start and it remained uh, even a few months into the pandemic whereas in the us it totally disappeared after a few months (laughs) and so we have to wait and see what will happen in due course so whether this is something that will persist It will be interesting to see what happens. Oh, I have to follow up with you
1: on that. That sounds fascinating.
5: It was fascinating, yeah. So
1: So I thank you again very much, Guillaume, for coming onto our show. My pleasure. Great to speak with you. Thank you, Anne.
3: There was a movement for a long time, called Wages for Housework.
1: Rowan Gray, who is a lawyer by training and who set up the Modern Monetary Network.
3: Which was an attempt to say, well, we do all of this work, it's unrecognised, you should give us something like a basic income. And there are actually other feminists who sort of launched a counter movement called Wages Against Housework, and they said, look... We don't want you to give us a sort of check. Thank you very much for doing all this stuff at home that we somehow have to do. We want to socialize that labor, create childcare cooperatives, create entities that can provide cleaning services and things so that it's not always on us. If we want to get a job, we can go do that. But to create formal work opportunities out of what is currently implicitly required to be done privately is a way of taking out of those household spheres kinds of labor and putting them into a formal labor context where you can have things like good job conditions, standardized support services, things like that. So in the same way as we have schools for raising children and we have professional health care givers, we're not all relying on that one family member who knows something about herbs or something, that a lot of the work that is currently done invisibly or informally can and should be formalised so that we can have a conversation about what it looks like, how it works, who should be doing it, how we can make sure there's accountability, justice, fairness in that work.
1: I'm still trying to figure this part out, Kevin, which is, you know, how we've discovered on this show that it suits certain interests to have a level of unemployment you know, once upon a time, I might have thought that, oh yes, when there's a whole lot of unemployed people, that's just you know the way it is. For example, recently, it might have been just due to the COVID pandemic recession, and so you know we've just got to deal with having all these unemployed. And it's just
0: it's just the way of the world, Anne. It's just like just like uh, <laughs> just like in the in the forests and the jungles, there's a natural order, and and we've been told that there's a, a natural <laughs> way of the unemployed
4: world.
1: That's right. There's the natural phenomenon of the unemployed. And now, of course, we know that it's a political choice, that the government is choosing the rate because, of course, they have unlimited spending capacity to employ every last person who wants a job. So then I was thinking, well, what is being gained from keeping women in poverty? Is somebody gaining something here? Or are women just collateral damage of some kind of, I don't know, bizarre neoliberal idea about how we have to have a surplus and we just can't afford universal childcare. So what do you reckon? Like, is there something going on?
0: What we're learning through this show is that all of these things are by design. And if they're by design, there has to be a reason. So the question is, who's gaining out of this? What's what's to be gained out of having a society where you're not utilising their capacity, you're devaluing their worth when they're doing important things, mm. and somebody who is rich is probably getting richer. <laughs> and I say this just as a blanket statement to everything. It's, it's how it works out. It's the polarisation of wealth. Mm. Uh, and so I'd be very interested to find out as to who's benefiting out of this.
1: Well, maybe it's part of um, that the workforce has become more and more casualized under the neoliberal era. And what that means, of course, is that workers have worse conditions and they have less pay. And so maybe... Um, Not supporting mothers getting back into the workforce. Maybe that's just part of driving down wages and conditions.
0: Most likely, yeah.
1: And it was really interesting talking with Guillaume Kalb And she obviously is not an MM mmt and was quite surprised to hear me talking about the government's unlimited spending capacity. Uh, But one thing she did say there was... When I asked her, why are we still trying to get the things we've been wanting to get since the 70s, like proper payments for men to stay at home and be carers, like universal childcare, like equality of superannuation for women, and she thinks part of it is just the problem that there's too much short-term planning and not enough long-term planning in the political process, so that the election cycle doesn't support long-term planning. And I thought, well one of the casualties of the deficit myth, so one of the casualties of this idea that there's a limit on government spending and that we're going to run out of Australian dollars, one of those casualties might be long-term planning and I'd never really thought of it that way.
0: Except that the uh, neoliberals seem to have a long-term plan that's working rather well and it's this gradual (laughs) dismantling of a a fair economy. Hmm. So uh, I, I think... Probably the progressive agenda has been wrong-footed far too often for them to establish any sort of plan. Mm. And I keep on coming back to it. The only really progressive leader we've had since World War Two was the three years of Gough Whitlam, mm. which means that the conservative side of government has had pretty much free reign since 1947, 48. That's a, that's a long time. And they've disguised their agenda.
1: Mm. I guess what we're identifying is the lack of a progressive long-term vision, which would include things like investing in women as part of the workforce. Indeed. So I guess the only way to break out of that is to break out of the neoliberal framework altogether. And one of the best ways to do it is to learn a bit of modern monetary theory to understand what the real spending capacity of the government is. (laughs) Excellent. Well, Kevin. I think that's us done for today. It's been absolutely fascinating for me as a non-mother to hear from these women.
0: Well, another good show, Anne. Thank you very much. (laughs) And uh, we'll see you again in a couple of weeks.
1: See you then, Kevin. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back.
0: Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the sewer show on 3CR.
1: Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au.
0: We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne.
1: And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no,
0: no, the pleasure was all mine.
1: Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine.
0: You mean all the pleasure was yours?
1: Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. (laughs) Well, if you
0: took all the pleasure, that means there's no pleasure for me at all, and I I quite enjoyed myself. So if you've got all the pleasure... What, I had no no pleasure?
1: I think we should share the pleasure. (laughs) Well,
0: we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, I don't mind you having pleasure. It's great. great. have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you and it was pleasurable for me. I think we've got
1: a multiplier. You've been listening to
0: a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR
2: in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.